I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you, got you Today's guest is Dory Clark, who is an expert at self-reinvention and helping others make changes in their lives. Dory Clark has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50 and was recognized as the number one communication coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. Clark is a consultant and keynote speaker. She teaches executive education at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and Columbia Business School. And she is the author of Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out, which has been named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine. Dory has a new book coming out September 21st called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And Sean and her dive deep into that on this episode. For the high performers looking to improve their leadership abilities, listen up and get ready to discover the path to becoming a better version of yourself. Let's face it, the best leaders, they're always on the hunt for insights, wisdom, looking for ways to get better, ways to make other people better. They see the gap between who they are and who they could be. For three decades, thousands of the world's most elite leaders have turned to admired leadership for insights, for the behaviors and routines of true leadership excellence, how to make decisions, build relationships, how to motivate and inspire. Now, for the first time, these rare insights are available online. Admired Leadership has this incredible video platform that focuses on 10 areas that are critical for all leaders. In each video module, you'll learn the 10 specific behaviors of the very best leaders. I've had the pleasure of taking this course, and it is hands down the best course I have ever taken on leadership. If you're looking to better yourself or raise up the team or company you're working with, then you have to check out Admired Leadership. I'm also excited about the new Admired Leadership Field Notes email. This is a daily email from the front lines of leadership. It's free, and even better, when you sign up, you'll get a special 16-page guide to motivation and inspiration that will change the way you lead. So you need to ask yourself the question, are you ready to become an even better leader? If so, find out more at admiredleadership.com. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8Sleep. 8Sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8Sleep is the most advanced solution on the market. And what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who were like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular as garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com 
forward slash Sean to check out the pod pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's eightsleep.com forward slash Sean. Dory, welcome to what got you there. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean, I'm great, and it's so good to be speaking with you. Yeah, I'm so excited to dive into a bit more about you and then everything that you've been working on, but I would love to know, do you have any non-negotiables? I, I want to know about those things that like really move those big buckets forward for you each day. Anything like that that you love doing each day? Oh, my gosh. I I would say that one of the things that uh, <laughs> that I've, I've tried – I've tried to turn necessity into an art form is I used to go out every morning and get, you know, I live, I live in downtown New York. So I would go out and buy a cup of coffee, but during COVID I bought, because these, you know, these coffee shops are so sad. They're sort of dropping like flies. And and then the ones that were open weren't opening until like eight or nine in the morning. And so I bought this super fancy, expensive coffee machine, which took me probably three or four hours, I'm not joking, to figure out how to make it work. But my project has been to, uh, I'm, I'm really still terribly unsuccessful. I've even registered for online classes to learn latte art and to, uh, to, to turn the necessity into something beautiful. And so, yeah, just at a really simple level. I mean, I'm not like the meditate in the morning kind of person, but now I'm trying to make really good coffee and hopefully one day to be an impresario of latte art. I absolutely love it. I'm wondering, are any of those expensive machines, are they worth it? I feel like I, I, I'm obsessed with coffee. I love it. So I've always thought about it, but I, I've just never bitten the bullet and gotten one. Well, I I think it's actually pretty pretty great. I mean, you have the ability to be so precise, you know, to control all the variables and it takes a learning curve to really understand, but you know, if you if you want the grind to be 11.5 and not 12, Sean, you can make that call. So, uh, I think with as with a lot of things, uh, the extra level of personalization gets useful the more you know about something. Oh, I love it. Yeah, you, the, the extra layers, that depth you can go, like knowledge is horizontal. The, the more you see, like the further you can go. I, I'm not going to digress too far here, but there is this documentary I saw. It was, it was on a flight back from somewhere um, and it was all about the the exact art of coffee. So it was, it was a competition, everything like that. So I don't remember the title, but that might be one you want to look into. I mean, it's just so apparent, like even right off the start here, you're just voraciously curious. It seems like you're, you're constantly like wanting to learn, uncover how things work. I'm wondering for you, like when you're trying to dive into something new, what does that approach look like for you? Yeah, that's that's such a good question. When I'm trying to learn something new, I mean, when I was a kid in middle school, and and I, I know uh, now as an adult that actually, interestingly enough, this is like a somewhat controversial educational philosophy. I feel like everything in education is controversial <laughs> these days. But in the 1980s and early 90s, there was a professor named E.D. Hirsch who created this kind of movement called cultural literacy. And it it has gotten uh, criticized by some as being too Western, too Anglo-centric. But the goal of it was to basically say, hey, there are these pillars of cultural literacy that we need to be teaching to kids so that they know what's what. And when you when they come across a cultural reference, they're not going to be like, wait, what is that? And uh, to, to create a shared canon. And so my school, when I was in middle school, 
embraced this philosophy. And so we were kind of studying off of it. And I have to say, I feel very grateful because, you know, I mean, who wants to be the idiot that yeah. doesn't know when everybody's like, oh, you know, it's just like Scylla and Charybdis. And you're like, what's that? You know, so I, I think that it is it is very helpful. So in general, what I try to do based on that is if I'm trying to lean into a new field, uh, I will try to read a few kind of foundational overview books about it. Now, depending on the topic, there's not always good choices, but I, I love, I, I'm a big fan of kind of like narrative journalism and, you know, when it, when a journalist gives a good overview of things. And so I've gone through different topics, you know, whether it's learning about different countries like history of India, history of China, history of musical theater. Uh, and there's there's great overview books. And then once I have kind of the, the general lay of the land, I'll go deeper into specific areas. I'm wondering, even in all your books, you're able to synthesize and distill down all these great stories. And obviously, like you you, you weave them in so well. I'm wondering, like, how are you synthesizing that? Because like you just pick up any of your books and it's like, wow, like there, there's a massive number of great references and stories here. Like I'm just wondering how you've kept them top of mind for yourself. So when you are actually diving into one of your books, you know exactly where to pull that from. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, ultimately where the stories come from, you know, I, I think what I've learned over time is that when, when you're first starting out, at least this was true for me and you have like no experience, you've kind of done nothing <laughs> yourself. Uh, we all draw from the same stories. And, and this is actually where things sound amateurish or boring, right? This is kind of the distinction between the amateurs and pros. And I know this from my own experience because early on you haven't done anything. And so like all you have is like sort of regurgitating things you've read, which is why you read so many people telling the same stories about Steve Jobs that they cribbed from the Walter Isaacson yeah. bio, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, we've really heard enough about Steve Jobs. Thank you. That's great. Um, and so I think as we attain higher levels of mastery, we get our own stories and it's either stories about things that we've done or people that we've advised or just people that we've met and run into. And so one of the things that's always been interesting for me is I, you know, I, I really like hearing people's stories and, and finding out more about them. And so ultimately the stories that are in my books really are just people I know. Yeah. And I think over time, my range of people that I know, thankfully, and I've, I've worked at this, has gotten uh, wider. You know, for my first book, Reinventing You, it was like mostly just, I mean, I, I, try, I tried to not like, you know, tout this too much, but mostly it's like stories about people I knew in Boston because I was living in Boston. And, you know, you could come up with a really great book because everybody's story is really interesting, even if they're kind of all from the same place. But now with my latest book, The Long Game, I mean, I actually have uh, been fortunate enough to cultivate a kind of international community of connections. And so I have stories from people from Australia and Singapore and, and you know, Hong Kong and, you know, all across the United States and Europe. And I love that because I'm able to present a greater picture of, of diversity. But at its core, it really is just people that I've gotten to know. And in the course of getting to know them, I'm like, wow, there's this kind of extraordinary thing about them. I bet other people would be interested in it. Yeah. I mean, speaking of people who are interested, you're one of those people I'm really interested in. And what I love so much about what you've been able to do is you've, let's just call it like achieving mastery or conquered multiple domains. And I mean, like, 
speaking, book publishing, all of these different things, working with great business leaders, like you've been able to skill up and level yourself up pretty quickly, it seems like in those. Obviously, when I say quickly, I mean a number of years, like you really work hard at it. I'm wondering for you, as you've conquered some of these multiple domains, does it get easier? Can you replicate kind of the, the similar playbook or is each time what you're trying to achieve completely different? You raise an interesting question, Sean. And one of the things that I'm actually doing right now to kind of essentially keep myself honest, and I chronicle this process in the long game as well, is five years ago in 2016, I decided that I wanted to learn how to write musical theater and write a show that would make it to Broadway. And I was really starting from pretty much zero. There's not a built-in advantage here. I, I had no connections on Broadway. I was not even that knowledgeable about Broadway, like I, just nothing. And I wanted to see if I could apply my own process and my own principles to be able to do this. You know, I, I've spent the past decade studying the process of how you become a recognized expert in your field, creating a, uh, a, a what I hope is a, a fairly thoughtful formula about how to do it that I've written in the about in the Harvard Business Review and other places and created this online course and community called Recognized Expert that more than 600 people have gone through. And so I've seen over time this kind of, you know, longitudinal process of what it takes. And so, you know, I have a pretty good deal of confidence in the process because it's things that I did. It's, it's things that people in the community have done. But I basically said, you know what, I am going to work the process myself, you know, starting from the beginning in a different field to see how that works. And, you know, fingers crossed, so far, so good. I'm five years into a 10-year plan, but I think that the same principles apply. You know, the key, the key principles as I've uh, discerned them being content creation, meaning you have to share your ideas, or in the case of musical theater, you've got to create and share work. Uh, social proof, you know, what is your credibility? Why, why should people take you seriously? In business, it might be that you've written for Harvard Business Review or you know, you've consulted for Google. In musical theater, it might be that you won a Jonathan Larson fellowship or it might be that you um, got to, to do uh, a fellowship at the O'Neill or you know, whatever the sort of industry markers are, but every industry has its markers. And then the third is building your network. So people have heard of you and people will help you. And so I've been working on living living that process out and uh, a- attempting to walk the talk uh, on a continual basis. No, I absolutely love people who do that. I'm wondering, one of the words you mentioned there is confidence. And I would love to just know like how your confidence has gone both up and down throughout just like your career trajectory here. Well, I think the musical theater piece is useful because something that, that I, I feel like is true somewhat across the board, is that generally by the time we are adults, there there are rarely situations that we enter where we are just terrible at something that that we're that we're you know sort of supposed to be good at, right? Like if if you've literally never done something, like you've never done a sport, like the stakes, the stakes are relatively low, right? If you're if you're 35 years old and you're like, I'm gonna learn to play tennis you're not going to be like publicly shamed if you're bad when you start at tennis. They're not going to be like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, it's like, okay, well, he's never done tennis. That's that's all right. Um, but what I'm talking about and where the emotional risk comes from is from a thing that people kind of expect you to be good at or you're in a context where they're like, well, why, 
why aren't you? Don't you know this? Like, what's kind of, what is your problem? And it's rare that we're in those situations, certainly not voluntarily. And so when it comes to to confidence, um, something that I really had to experience and brush up against was when I, one of the, you know, stages, one of the parts of the process for me for uh, learning musical theater was I was accepted into and, you know, caveat, I was applied to, was turned down for, and then applied to again, and then finally was accepted, you know, the second time to this uh, fairly elite training program for musical theater. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is the right place for me, obviously, because it's a training program and that's what I need. I need a training program. Well, lo and behold, the other people in the training program, multiple of them had master's degrees in musical (laughs) theater. I was like, oh, do you really need to be trained more? Because I'm thinking probably not. (laughs) So, I mean, just just the disparity was like incredibly humiliating because they obviously expected a certain level of of competence and mastery that I did not possess in any way. And so having to deal with just that total humiliation of like, wow, like like they literally know like you know, a hundred X more than I do about this. And, you know, and they expect you to know at least a basic amount. So it just, just having to sit with that, I think, you know, I think it's actually pretty good for you because it is incredibly uncomfortable. And I just had to go back to first principles, which is like, look, my source of comfort and confidence as a human being does not come from here. It comes, it comes from a different place. Like I can be bad at this or relatively bad at this and I can still feel okay about myself in general. Well, that's, that's like one of the, the key mindsets there. And if you're able to, to go out on a limb like that and understand that. So I love that you bring that up. I'm just wondering, like you can even tell like how many different things you love dabbling into. What did you think you were going to be when you were younger? Like, could you have foreseen this at all? You know, it's it's hard to foresee this precise configuration, um, but broadly speaking, it would not have shocked me. I guess if you if you like went back in time and and you know were like whispering in my ear as as a college student, um, I remember very distinctly. You know, it was hard when I was in college figuring out what I wanted to do because um, there was there was this moment where. The, the career services office, you know, the advice that they gave to us, I guess there was some workshop or whatever. They were like, well, make a list and write down the things that you like doing and then see if you can reverse engineer it to find a job where you can do those things. And I was like, all right, well, that seems pretty solid. I can do that. And so basically I had like a, a list with two bullets and it was, I like to read the newspaper and I like to give people my opinion. <laughs> and I'm like, how do I get a job like that? And I, I feel very lucky that I kind of did. For you, I'm curious now, like with this, like what's underneath the hood that's that's driving you? Like clearly there's something, right? Like even like just your relentless curious nature around certain things. Like you want to make a great latte and then you want to conquer these multiple business domains. Like have you uncovered what that is for you that just keeps driving you? You know, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that. I, I'll just say that I, um, at, at the risk of grandiosity, uh, have just always really felt like I have, um, I don't know, sort of a mandate to make a big difference in the world. Mm. And I'm not sure exactly what form that will take. I suspect it's not in latte art, although, you know, TBD, we we'll know. see. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I uh, have just felt like I have 
perhaps a unique capacity to uh, to make a difference in some way. And so I think that uh, I've just felt like I need to figure that out and do my best. I think that's beautiful. I, I almost wish like you weren't like trying to avoid saying grandiosity there. I mean, I think that's that's awesome when people have these things and they're like, you know what? No, I'm actually like really internally, I can't even put my finger on it, but like I'm driven by something that's gonna like pull me out of what I wanna do and bring more to this earth. I think that's beautiful. I love like when people are trying to conquer multiple things. So like if I were you, I'd be like, hell yeah, like be proud of that. That's awesome. We need more people like you doing this. So- Well, thank you, Sean. Yeah, no, I, I just love that. And so obviously like we're, we're talking a lot about different things you've done in the past. And then one of the things you've been working on recently is your new book, coming out September 21st, The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And this is something that's just like always top of mind for me. A lot of the investing I do, like, right, how do you be a strategic long-term thinker? And so like this book, I was like, oh yes, I want to dive into this so much. But I'm wondering for you, where was that curiosity peaked where you were like, you know what, I'm actually going to take all the time to sit down and write this book all about long-term thinking? Well, a lot of where the inspiration came from was actually as a result of running the recognized expert community for the past five years, because so often, whether it was the private coaching that I was doing with with executive coaching clients or folks in the community, what I would see is that people were wanting to change strategy too frequently. Like, I'd be doing coaching and, you know, we'd talk about something and okay, they've got a plan. And then two weeks later we have another call and they're like, so what else, what else should I be doing? What should I be doing different? What am I missing? What am I not doing? And I was like, Whoa, tiger. Like, like maybe you do the other thing for more than two weeks. Like it's okay. We don't have to continually be looking for the next thing or the different thing. And and I realize this is such a human phenomenon, right? I mean, there's certainly times in my life where I've uh, been susceptible to this as well, that we we get a little panicky because we feel like, well, it's not working. It's not working. What's wrong? And oftentimes the truth is it's just not working because it takes time. It takes a lot of time and it takes more time than we want it to. And somehow we have to get patient about that. And and patience is not something that I've ever been uh, a particular fan of. It is something that I've had to deal with. And I wanted to write a book to to hopefully try to be helpful to people uh, in my recognized expert community and people like them, which I think is is a lot of us, you know, I mean, professionals who want to make a difference, who want to have a good career, um, but, but sometimes get frustrated because it is what I've learned is is the, the the crux of the problem so often is that in the moment, it is almost impossible to tell the difference between whether something is not working or whether something is not working yet. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to help people be able, hopefully, to get better at making that distinction and thinking it through so that they're able to persevere where they need to. I'm wondering, like, where do we even begin with that short-term mindset to kind of escape from that? I feel like there's so many external pressures, right? Like we let the internal be so affected by the external. And I feel like that short-term mindset, but escaping that, where would you even start with that? Yeah, well, one, one thing, uh, and I wrote a piece a while ago for the Harvard Business Review about this is actually limiting how frequently you revisit your goals. Hmm. Uh, I think, 
you want to re, you know, obviously you want to revisit them often enough so that they stay relevant, they stay meaningful. Uh, we don't want to be in the situation where it's like, well, you know, I, I thought it was a good idea when I was 18. And so, you know, now I'm, now I'm 48 and I'm still doing, you know, I'm still doing that thing, whatever, whatever that is. Um, that's not a good enough reason, but we also don't want to be at the other end of the spectrum where, you know, we just get this whiplash and you can never actually accomplish anything because you keep pivoting too frequently. So what I suggest is coming up with with goals for a period of about six months. And I like to say, you know, for me personally, what I do is I try to focus on no more than than two or a maximum of three goals during the six month period. Usually it's um, either two professional and one personal or maybe one professional and two personal. And that, you know, I mean, of course, you're doing other things, you know, you answer emails or things you have to to keep your life and your business going. But in terms of the primary focus, that is what you're trying to move forward. Six months is often enough to be able to get a taste, to get a sense of, you know, okay, well, am I enjoying this? Is this making a difference? Am I, am I getting anywhere with it? And you have the ability to re-up at the end of six months. You can say, oh, you know, I'm going to keep this going. I'm going to, I'm going to work on this for a year. Or if at the end of six months, you're like, wow, that sucked. <laughs> you, you can change at that point. But you need to give things enough time to be able to, to actually see if, if they're working or not. Yeah, I love the word they use there, taste. Like, you need a taste for things. So many people want these things to be, like, binary and black and white and, like, oh, yeah, this is absolutely 100% going to change my life forever or, like, this is the worst decision. It's like, you know what? Sometimes things are gray. And so, like, giving yourself a taste with that timeline, I absolutely love that. One of the things you bring up in the book is something I feel like, I mean, I've dealt with in the past and so many people do, is just that feeling, like, we need to show that we're busy and, like, we we constantly busy. And, and you even bring up a great story from someone I'm a big fan of, Derek Sivers. And, like, I, I would love for you to just kind of talk about busyness because we always feel the need to just look so productive to everyone else. And sometimes that's usually not the best decision. Yeah, absolutely. It it was interesting because for me, where, where this started was I at first was perceiving this anecdotally. And then I actually looked at the statistics and I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. But you know, like pretty much everybody will say, oh, strategy is very important. Like it's, it, you know, you would be hard pressed to find someone who says, oh, you know, nobody needs strategy. Who needs strategy? Right. Like, I think there's, there's fairly universal agreement that yes, this is a good thing, but it is almost equally the case. And studies bear this out that for almost everybody who says, yes, strategy is super important. It's the most important thing. Almost all of them say, and I don't have enough time for strategy. (laughs) It's like, wait a minute, what are, what are we doing here? What's going on? And so there's, there's a lot of hidden reasons behind it. I mean, there's obvious reasons like, yes, we have too many meetings and things like that. But there's also hidden emotional reasons sometimes. And, and uh, research by Sylvia Baletza at Columbia Business School has actually shown that in, in most Western cultures, busyness is viewed as a form of status. And so if we give up the busyness, we actually risk you know, certainly in our own eyes, but possibly in the eyes of other people, looking like we're a little less important, like we're a little less essential, which, uh, you know, because this is all happening under the surface and subconsciously, um, you know, many of us are just not willing to give up. And so what I loved about my conversation with Derek Sivers is he said, look, you know, back, back, you know, in, in the days when he was 
formulating his life philosophy and he was an entrepreneur and in the hurly burly, he said he would look at people who were so busy, who were so crazed and everybody was, you know, just so admiring. Oh, look at, look at them. Wow. And he said, he, he just wasn't that impressed. He said, "Eh, you know, do I really want my life to be like that? And he said, instead he found different role models and the people that, that were his role models were the people that acted like they had all the time in the world, that they could choose what they wanted to do, that they were fully present when they were with him or when they were doing whatever. And he said he just reoriented himself. And he said, you know what? That's what I want to be like. And I think for all of us, we can recognize these factors and perhaps reconfigure um, how we are rating and prioritizing who our role models are. I, I love that concept of like really pulling out those role models that identify with you, not like what the ego is telling you from from the outside. And it's like, no, 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 like what's what's the life I want to live and identify that. You were bringing up strategy there. And I, I really want to know the, and understand the difference between patience and strategic patience, because to be a long term thinker, we're going to need patience. So I, I would love to kind of differentiate the two. Yeah. So strategic patience is a, a term that that I coined because because I just feel so bitter toward regular <laughs> patients. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, this is the problem, like, you know, my whole life, my mom's here visiting me and she would surely tell you that uh, ever since I was a little kid, I was just like, no, I don't want to wait. I, you know, I want to be able to do this and this and this. I was so offended when I was a little kid and I learned that I wasn't allowed to vote. I was just like, ah, my civil rights are being violated. Um, but uh, so regular patients has just never appealed to me because it just seems so passive. It's just, like, well, just sit back, you know, just, just deal with it. Mm, You know, maybe good things will happen. It'll work out. And I'm just like, I don't want to wait. You know, I don't want, I don't want to just, oh, maybe things will work out. It just seemed so, um, you know, like you're, you're uh, derelicting your duty somehow to, to advocate. And so anyway, strategic patience is me finding a way to make peace with this because it is true. It is just incontrovertibly true that things take longer than we want them to. And especially, frankly, good things, you know, things that are worth waiting for, they often take longer than we want. And we have to deal with that one way or another. But rather than just sitting back and like, oh, you know, creating a wishboard on Pinterest, uh, what I like to suggest instead is strategic patience, which to me it's about creating a hypothesis about what is going to happen and what you want to happen and then actively monitoring is it happening what are the raindrops that's my term for it that you know a lot of people sort of ignore this or they don't pay proper attention they they feel like you know oh well it doesn't count until you get the new york times bestseller or it doesn't count until you're keynoting the conference or whatever but the truth is there are a lot of small signs along the way that you actually are making progress and some of them don't make a big impression and people really do overlook them it's like oh well you know you got 10 random people sending you linkedin invitations today well you know some people would look at it and they'd be like whatever But you actually can look at it and say, wait a minute, how did these people find out about me? Oh, people are starting to hear my name. People are starting to be interested in what I'm doing. Or, you know, you get get an unsolicited, just nice note from a client. Or you get, you know, praise from your boss for something that you did. Those are small things, but they should not be written off as insignificant. Those are the raindrops you need 
that can help get you through those dry times when you're not making progress. To me, that's what strategic patience looks like. Oh, that's awesome. I, I love the framework too, the raindrops, the way I think about it, uh, it. Like my own wording is just the aggregation of marginal gains, like those small little things that in the time like might not be that big. Then you look out, like you mentioned, long-term, five years, 10 years, and how much those little raindrops add up. So I, I love that. One of the things we were kind of talking about a minute ago, which is kind of like understanding some of the long-term stuff. So I'm wondering for you, like, how do you get to that place where like you really break down and understand what you deem a meaningful life for yourself? How are you creating that? Yeah, it's, it's the sort of the million dollar question. <laughs> how do you formulate that for yourself? And so there's, there's a couple of answers. I mean, the first one is it is important, of course, to divorce yourself from the things that have been put on you. Hmm. And for a lot of us, we just, you know, some of it is societal. Then when we all get sort of similar messages about what success looks like or what we should be expecting, um, some of it is, is more personal. It might be coming from your family or your spouse or whomever. But the truth is you get to be an adult and there's, there's a lot of things that, <laughs> you know, ideologies that have been put on you about what success should be or what it looks like. And I think step one is just really uh, stepping back from that and analyzing, okay, do I agree with this? Uh, is, is this what I want to be optimizing toward? And maybe it is, which is great, but not everybody has to have um, the particular trappings of success. They might want something different. And I think COVID has actually been really good for this in the sense that there has been a lot of reckoning that people have had about, you know, do I really want to live in this town? Do, you know, do I, do I really want to be in this career? And those are useful questions to be asking. Now, the second piece that I, I think is helpful as we're formulating, you know, what do we want to do is uh, something that I rail against a little bit in the long game is the push in our society toward this. You, know, you hear it all the time. There's, oh, find your passion. You have to find your passion. And I, you know, God bless, if you know what your passion is, then by all means. But the problem, as I see it, is that so many people are just not quite sure. And if you are in that position where you're not quite sure what your passion is, people often feel a lot of shame about that. They feel like, well, God, what's wrong with me if I don't know what my passion is? And then the next step, which is, you know, really going down the wrong direction is they say, well, Obviously, I can't do anything until I figure out what my passion is. So I'll just sit back and be patient, and then I'll find my passion. And then whatever, like 15 years have gone by, and they haven't done anything. So I prefer the concept that I talk about in the long game of optimizing for interesting. And what I mean by that is forget about what your passion is. You know, maybe you find it, maybe you don't. But 100%, every person knows what is interesting to them. You know, are you interested in golf? Are you interested in birds? Are you interested in math? Are you interested in wine? Like some of those things, you're going to be like, yeah, that's cool. And some of them, you're going to be like, oh my God, spare me. And you know the difference. And so the things you're interested in, like do more of that, go toward that. And that's that process of optimizing for what's interesting to you. If you keep moving in that direction, you are eventually going to learn what is what lights you up. You know, you are, you will get really good data just by doing that. 
Yeah, and a lot of times, too, the things you're most interested in, like, you're going to be more willing to put in the work required, even if you're unaware of it. Like, what what feels like play for you might feel like total work to other people, but the time you're going to spend with it. So I think that's an excellent framework. I, I, I like love how, like, you just reshape these frameworks and even put, like, your own labeling. Any other ones that you just really, really like, really enjoy, and you're like, oh, yeah, that was really creative if you're just, like, zooming out on yourself? Well, you know, I, I think one uh, one that I talk about in the book, which I did not actually come up with, but I, I quote a friend of mine who who came up with the, the frame, which I think is uh, is clever. Uh, I have a good friend named Dave Crenshaw, who's a time management and productivity expert, and he talks about a concept called distance to empty. And I like this one a lot. Uh, distance to empty, as you might imagine, uh, sort of metaphorically comes from if you're driving your car and on the gas gauge, it'll say, you know, how many miles or, you know, I guess, depending where you are, how many kilometers it is until you need to get more gas. And so it sort of shows you what it what is that margin that you need to be uh, mindful of. And so Dave has created this great, this great sort of career structure for himself, you know, which I mean, he should as a time management expert, but dude takes two months off a year. He takes all of December off. He takes all of August off. So, you know, Dave Crenshaw, uh, hard to get in touch with right now because he's, <laughs> he's partying. And a lot of people, as you can imagine, are like, oh my gosh, Dave, that's great. I want to do that. And then inevitably it's like, oh, but I can't do that because I have a meeting next week and then I have a this and I have a that and blah, 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 blah. And so what Dave has come up with, which I think is useful for all of us is he says, look, you know, don't don't like jump into something way too big, right? You probably can't take two months off from, you know, from, from this like, uh, you know, standing start. That's not the plan. What he says is just go in reasonable increments. And so if you, if your life feels out of control, if you're working till nine o'clock every night, don't try to, you know, take two months off from there. That's ridiculous. He says, it's it's almost like rewinding your circadian rhythm if you're trying to you know shift time zones like say all right i'm going to make a rule i'm only going to work until 8:30 every night and you do that for a week or two weeks until you can really master that and you make it a hard stop and then you say all right well i'm going to pull it back to 8 and and eventually you are able, you know, much like the distance to empty gauge on your car, uh, you are able to have more and more margin that you're building in and more and more control over your life and your schedule. One of the things I love about that too is as, as we condense that, those constraints, they're going to build that creative element, right? Like you're just going to have to maximize some of that time as well, which which I think is like this almost like forcing function to really make that happen, which is cool. I also, growing up in the 90s, just being a big Seinfeld fan, there's like that great episode where, where uh, Kramer's just driving the car completely on empty and just seeing how far you can go. So like while reading the book, I, I just had Kramer driving that car the whole time in the, in the back of my mind. But but one of the things that really lead to you being able to take away two months or do things like that is just that ability to say no. And I know this is such a crucial thing, but at the same time, it's such a difficult thing for so many people to grasp and then implement. I'm wondering how you've gone about just being able to say no more often to free up some of those big buckets on things that like are truly meaningful to you. Yeah, it it really is an important cornerstone because obviously, I mean, in, in fact, the whole first section, the first few chapters of the long game is about how to create more white space in your schedule because it's just structurally impossible for you to be doing effective long-term thinking if 
your entire mind, your entire calendar, your entire life is about, oh, but I've got this meeting and oh my gosh, I've got, you know, 10 minutes and then I've got to go to this other, but, 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 you know, and, and there's just, there's no room in there. And it's not like strategic thinking or long-term planning takes, you know, 20 hours a week. Like that is not the case, but do you need to have like five minutes to breathe? Yes, you do. And so that is really the first step that is essential. And so to your point, Sean, one of the things that that I've really had to do is first of all, realize, because I, I think sometimes people, people don't, if they're just kind of going and going and going, that this becomes a continual problem because as you get more senior in your profession and more successful, um, you know, and, and, and these things could, could could coincide or or not, but but often they do. Um, you are going to continually have to move the ratchet on this because things that you would have said yes to a year ago, certainly five years ago, you can't afford to say yes to them anymore. This is this is not about you being a jerk. This is not about like oh well, he's too good for me now. Uh, it is literally about being able to do your job effectively. Because the truth is, when you're 22, like it's not like there's like a line waiting out the door. You know, I mean, in, unless unless somehow you're like super famous because you were. Uh, you know, you're an NBA star or something like that. Most people are like, okay, this is an obscure person and whatever. And so at that point, you should say yes to whatever. You're like, oh, great. Somebody wants to meet with me. Amazing. I'll meet some people. I'll learn some things. That's awesome. That's the right move early in your career. It is the wrong move later in your career because as you get more responsibility and you have the ability to make a bigger impact with what you're doing, you need to be reallocating your time and effort to, you know, moving the big rocks and to moving forward the big projects. And if you, uh, if if you make the wrong choices, if you let your time be chopped up into a million little bits where you're just, you know, having random phone calls with random people and you don't even know why, um, that's not actually accomplishing anything productive, and you end up really cheating yourself in the end. You're not accomplishing the things that you have the capacity to, and you're not really living up to your potential. So we have to get rigorous about understanding that the terms have changed. I love how you bring up adjusting the dial, and I wish more people would really think about that strategically and adjust that dial as they're progressing, and it's just such a great framework, and I just want people to explore that a a little bit further. There's so many great takeaways from from long-term thinking in the book. I'm wondering for you personally – which ones do you just struggle the most with, right? Like we can see it on paper, like, oh yeah, it's like I should be doing this, but I just have a really tough time. I'm wondering for you what those are. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it, there, there are a lot of things that are, that are challenging. I mean, just at a, at a meta level, um, I am continually having to respond uh, to, to sort of reframe my thinking and just sort of continue to to keep myself honest. Uh, in the long game, I have a section where I interview a, a friend and a client of mine named Ron Carucci. And Ron talks about sort of the the, the frustrations and the stress that come along with um, sort of growing your platform, growing your profile. And I think he's he's really spot on that for most professionals, if you're if you're doing something we always want the thing that we're doing, you know, whether it's, um, you know, oh, this this project, this presentation to the board, this pitch to the investors, this book that I'm releasing, whatever it is, you want it to be the home run. And we know intellectually that 
you know, 99 times out of 100, there's not going to be a home run, right? I mean, what life is, is like you take a single, a single, a strikeout, a double, okay, another single, then you get walked. Like, that's what it looks like. And the truth is, you know, as you know, Sean, with, with compounding, that adds up and that actually gets you to a good place. But it never it never really feels like the big win that we want it to because like we want to be hitting the grand slam. And so we get mad at ourselves that it's like, well, you know, I released this book and I wanted it to sell like a hundred thousand copies the first week. And of course it pretty much never does. And so we just have to be um, honest with ourselves and say, okay, I know a part of me wants this to be a thing and also recognizing it's almost never that thing. And so you know, I, I try to, to just be a, a fan of, uh, you know, this is, is like the serenity prayer, right? It's like, you know, you can control what you can control and don't, don't worry about the rest. Like just, just do the things that you can control and understand that, um, the process is yours, the result you're just going to have to see. And so that, that is something that, uh, that I use the long game for as my mantra as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so cliche, but if you're not enjoying that process, it's going to be a really frustrating time for you because that entire journey, like you mentioned again and again, it takes so much longer than we always think it's going to. So like, you've really got to enjoy that work going on there. Uh, another one of the concepts that, that you bring up, I thought was really creative and I enjoy was just thinking in waves. And I, it's like such a great visual to think about, but I would just like love to dive into this with you a little bit more because I know there's even some more nuance there I can learn from you here. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, props to you, by the way, for reading the book so closely. I, I appreciate that, Sean. Um, so thinking in waves is a concept that I explore in the long game. And where this comes from really is that from the coaching work that I've done with clients, from the, the folks that I've worked with in the recognized expert community, Another thing that I have often seen trip up a lot of really smart and successful professionals is that sometimes people come to me and they and they're really frustrated because they say, I have been working so hard. I have been, I have been just, you know, slogging and doing, you know, doing this and doing this and doing this, and I'm not getting the results. And so I peel it back a little bit. And almost always what I hear is, you know, they're they're not wrong. They have been working hard. You know, they've not been watching cat videos. <laughs> they've been doing useful things. But the problem is that they have been over-indexing on doing the same thing. And that's great. I mean, it's better than nothing. But what you actually need to do is you need to shift the phase that you're in. And at a certain point, you need to do a different thing. And that is what is going to enable you to really be successful. Um, you typically can't just do one thing like a like a piece worker in a factory, like, well, I sew the left arm. Like that's not going to make you a shirt. <laughs> you got to do something else to make the whole shirt. And so for us, we need to, to be thinking in those waves. And so a way that this plays out in my own life, for instance, is, you know, right now, as we are having this conversation, I am in the thick of book promotion. And so my whole life is doing, you know, like doing interviews with media, doing podcasts, writing guest posts, all aimed at the book. That is important. And that is what is necessary right now. I would kill myself if I had to literally spend my whole life doing this every day because it's so intense. This is what I'm doing for the next four to six weeks. But then I'm shifting to a different phase. And of course, you keep up the promotional activities. You don't 
you know, give it up, but you need to, to refocus on other elements. So it could be refocusing on, you know, my paid consulting business or, you know, I'll be doing another launch of my course. Um, but, you know, certainly in the early part of 2022, I've scheduled a kind of quasi sabbatical for myself for a couple of months to relax from all of the, the hurly burly. But we need to have those phases because life is both it's both a marathon and a sprint. This is the sprint period, and yeah. you can't get away from that. But it's also, you can't last very long if all you're doing is sprinting. So we need to learn how to toggle. Is that sabbatical? Is that something you build in? Like, is, is that like, all right, I'm strategically going to place these types of sabbaticals throughout, call it a decade? Or is this just, you know what, I, I just wanted to enjoy this time? This, this is uh, an interesting question. This is my first time that I'm okay. officially doing this. So uh, so I don't yet have a um, official, oh, I always do this kind of strategy for it. But uh, when I say a quasi-sabbatical, I am going to be keeping um, – you know, keeping appointments with a few coaching clients, not too many. And I have a weekly show that I do for Newsweek. And that's something that, you know, it's it's a half an hour once a week and I, I like it. So I'm keeping that up. But literally everything else for the months of January and February, I have a block on my calendar. My assistant knows not to schedule things. So I'm not launching any things. I'm not going to be doing any podcasts. I am uh, going to just be utilizing that time in other ways, uh, focusing on private writing projects and uh, just things that are a little a little more relaxing as a countermeasure uh, to all of the extensive overwork that I'm doing right now, uh, which, you know, I don't mind. This is the time to do it, but you have to, you have to be aware of the seasons and know to shift between those seasons. Yeah. I'm actually like really curious with how many things you have and take part in what was actually like the scheduling for writing your book? Like where were you even finding additional time to be able to sit down and do that? Well, you know, I guess this was one of the favors I say in air quotes of COVID (laughs) is, uh, I used to spend a lot of time traveling and, you know, despite, despite people's best intentions, I mean, there's some people who say, oh yeah, I love traveling. So I get all my productive work done. I mean, God bless, but that, that is not me because so much of traveling is just racing around, right? I mean, you're not, you're not going to really be like working on your book manuscript in the cab. Uh, You're probably not doing it when you're going through security. Oh, and then you have to find the gate and, oh, they move the gate and, oh, you know, the flight's delayed. And meanwhile, you got to keep one ear cocked because they might change it again. And, oh, now we're boarding. And so it's, it's just these kind of like rare periods where you actually have the unfettered ability to work while you're traveling. So actually getting rid of that, I had a lot more time at home. Um, Also, you know, COVID, I live in New York City, all my friends left. So basically I wasn't going anywhere and I had no friends. So it was amazingly easy, Sean, to write a book. So, you know, hey, make make the best of the situation. Yeah, no, that's great. I, I am curious because, I mean, obviously your work's impacted a lot of people. I'm wondering for you, like who are the thinkers, ideas, any other other things that you've come across that you're like, you know what, this was pretty foundational for me. I really enjoyed this. This helped me progress. Uh, well, you know, I think about a lot of the things that I read when I was first getting started in my business because I did not have a background in business at all. I was I, the job that I had 
directly before starting my own business was being a nonprofit executive director. And I had done things like journalism and politics before that. Uh, I had literally never taken, I not only don't have a MBA or a PhD in business, but I had never taken a business course because I went to liberal arts schools. So I just had no idea. So early on, I strove to really educate myself by raiding the library mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, like all the books that I wanted. I mean, mostly they didn't have it in my little branch. So I'd do interlibrary loan and uh, just taking home these huge stacks every week. Um, but I think about some of the books that I read that, that really were classics and they're classics for a reason. I, I really loved them and continue to love them. So it would be things like uh, The E-Myth by Michael Gerber or um, Never Eat Alone by Keith Ferrazzi or um, Influenced by Robert Cialdini. And, you know, so an, an, a cool thing, a nice thing, actually, that happened to me earlier this year was Bob Cialdini did a new revised version of Influence, and he asked me to blurb it, which was very exciting because reading his book back when I was starting my business, I mean, it was like this, uh, you know, Bible. So to get an opportunity to be one of the endorsers was really great. Yeah, that's so cool. Cialdini's been a foundational influence for me. We were, we were fortunate enough to have him on the show a few months ago. So that was like one of those ones where I was just completely lit up for that. Uh, I'm wondering, this is just kind of like a, a side note. You mentioned liberal arts degree, no PhD, things like that. Uh, and then now you teach it two of the top 10 business schools in the world. Is that just kind of like funny for you? Yeah, yeah. I take a lot of satisfaction from it because, uh, I mean, it's like ultimately we all get rejected and sort of, you know, have our our hat handed to us so many times that I feel like one of the few pleasures in life is just like revenge. And so (laughs) I, uh, my first goal for myself professionally was after I, after I finished my master's degree, uh, which was in theology, I decided I wanted to become a university professor. Uh, and so, you know, this was not in the business field. Uh, I thought I wanted to, to do English literature. And so I applied for multiple doctoral programs and I, I got turned down by all of them. And I was, you know, I was angry (laughs) because I I had good grades and I I really thought I was going to get in. I did not have amazing GRE subject test scores because I had not been an English major. And I think that that is what perhaps torpedoed me. But uh, but yeah, I got turned down for for all of it. And uh, it was very upsetting because I did not have a plan B. So one of the things that has been enormously satisfying for me is literally within a handful of, of years after that, I think within three years, I had managed to uh, to start teaching as an adjunct professor at Tufts University. And I taught there for many years and I ended up uh, teaching undergrad stuff at Emerson and Suffolk. I was living in Boston at the time. And then in around 2010 or so, 2011, I started teaching business school and shifted to that. And so for the past decade have, uh, have been working as an executive ed professor. Um, but it's super satisfying for me because otherwise, you know, I would have spent seven, eight years, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars getting, uh, getting a doctorate to accomplish the same thing that now I, I'm able to do uh, at no additional cost. So it's very satisfying. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, take that universe, take that admissions committee assholes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, I mean, it's incredibly impressive, Dory. So yeah, it's something certainly to be just really proud of. I'm wondering, with such like a diverse, I don't know, just skill set and just so many different ideas you've been able to explore, if you could do this, right, like long form interview, anyone dead or alive, who would you just love spending an evening having a conversation like this with? 
Oh yeah. I, you know, I, I would say that someone who, who is a really cool Renaissance man uh, who I think you could talk about a million things with would be some, if we're, if we're going, you know, far, far ranging in history uh, would probably be somebody like Benjamin Franklin. Like I really admire, I mean, you know, he's a, diplomat he's a founding father he's like flying kites and figuring out electricity like the guy had it going on he yeah he's one of my all-time favorite thinkers he's definitely up there with with the answer that i would give as well so that's really cool to hear dory i know i know we talked a lot about different frameworks uh different ideas and and some of the great practices you can take away from the long game how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world which is out september 21st anything else you want to leave the listeners with where they can stay connected with you and then what they're going to take away if they do pick up the book I appreciate it, Sean. Thank you very much. Well, I will mention that for folks who are interested in turning the lens on themselves and sharpening uh, and going deeper into their own strategic thinking, I I do have a free resource, which is the Long Game Strategic Thinking Self-Assessment. And folks can download that for free at doryclark.com slash thelonggame. Awesome. So we're going to certainly have that linked up uh, where they can purchase the book as well. But Dory Clark, I cannot thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. This is one of those conversations I've been looking forward to having for a while. So thanks so much. Thank you, Sean. Really great to talk with you. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.